Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of God. Let's spend a few moments together reflecting on the glory of Christ, because that's what this story is about. This, this story is usually known as the transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured, his form changes. And it's the moment in the Gospels where Jesus' glory is most fully seen. It suddenly, I mean, until now, he's really looked just like any other 30-something Galilean carpenter. I mean, he can do wonderful miracles, he can still the storms, he can heal the sick and raise the dead even, but he's, he looks just like anyone else. And if you walk past him in the street, you just think, yeah, he's a kind of normal-looking guy. But here, for a few moments, minutes, hours, we're not sure, the veil comes off. And the, the transcendent radiance of the glory of Christ becomes clearly seen. Suddenly, it's as if we see him for who he really is. And it's marvellous and terrifying at the same time. The only parallel I can think of, and it's not a very good one, but it is a slight parallel, is when, you know when celebrities turn up incognito among their fans, either in disguise or deliberately sort of dressing in such a way that you wouldn't realise it was them, and then the, the fans, you know, they, you often see these clips on YouTube where, you know, a, a celebrity's turned up and people who know them suddenly go, it's, it's them, I can't believe it, they're here. It's a little bit like that. I remember seeing a, a video a couple of years back when Kaká, the brilliant Brazilian footballer who he won the Ballon d'Or, so he was basically the best player in the world uh, that year. And, and I mean, he turned up just a, a year or two ago in Hackney, in one, of, in one of the cages where you play football. And he just sort of turned up and starts coming as a, as a ringer for one of the two teams. And you can see these people sort of walking past and sort of double-taking, thinking, that's Kaká! Because for a while you're thinking, oh gosh, it's, that guy looks pretty handy. And then they're like, whoa, this, I think this is one of the greatest players to play the game, has suddenly appeared in front of me. Or I remember uh, Adele, you know, the pop star Adele, and she's had this brilliant prank. So Graham Norton arranged it, I think. And she turns up, she's all being filmed, but she turns up with like a fake nose and her hair done completely differently and weird makeup put on to make her not look like herself. And she turns up for an audition as an Adele impersonator. It's really, again, you can watch it online. It's really, millions of views. It's a really funny video because she turns up and they're all chatting to her. They think her name's Jenny and they think she's just trying to make it as an Adele impersonator. And then she gets up on the stage and she begins to sing and it's amazing because, of course, all of these other women who are huge fans of hers, one of them immediately gets it, grabs someone, goes, 
it's her, it's her. And then you've got all these other women going, no, he, she never, she never, no, she never. And they're just, they're denying it. And then as the song goes on, they're like, oh my goodness, it's actually, it's actually her. And it's almost like this sort of reverence and in probably not in a great way, worship almost begins to rise in them as they're going, oh my goodness, it's my idol. Now, there's a sense in which that serves as a parallel for what's happening here in the sense that Jesus is suddenly seen for who he is and they've been traveling with him and they've fallen asleep with him, they've eaten with him, they've done all the normal things you do, they've gone fishing with him. And now it's as if for a moment the glory of the person they have been walking around Galilee with all this time has become very, very obvious to them in an instant and it is terrifying and beautiful to them. This is a moment, it's actually the only moment in the gospel until after the resurrection where the glory of the king becomes seen for what it is. So let's meditate on this passage a bit for the next few minutes and just allow the spirit to fuel wonder at the glory of Christ in our hearts, shall we? And consider first, consider the glory of his appearance. Consider the glory of his appearance. Verses 28 to 29 Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The appearance of his face was altered. In Matthew's version of this story, he says his face shone like the sun. It's like they were looking at a face and he looked kind of normal. He's an ordinary face of a middle-aged Jewish tradesman. Builder guy, right? Brown eyes, olive skin, dark hair, probably a few missing teeth. I don't know, but they're just they're used to his appearance by now. He's just a mate. He's one of their one of their crowd who they know is special, but but he looks like anybody else. And that face is momentarily unable to prevent the radiant brilliance of the divine glory of Christ shining through to the world. It's as if the clouds have suddenly parted and you get to see the how brilliant, how radiant the sun truly is. And uh, we actually had this a few days ago, and it, certainly where I live, uh, you get sea mist. And you remember just as the weather was turning a few days back from where it had been just like kind of cold, a very cold May, wasn't it? And then it, you suddenly turn into bright sunshine in June. But there was a couple of days in the overlap where there was just crazy levels of fog. And I know it spread over quite a lot of southern England. You have this really quite, it was quite cold first thing in the morning, like 8 or 10 degrees, even though the weather forecast said it's going to be 24 degrees by the middle of the day. And where I live, the sea mist rolls in, and it's really cold. But you know, as you're walking through the sea mist, you think, in an hour or so, this is going to part, and it's going to go from being really cold to very hot. And I'm going to wish I wasn't wearing all of this extra stuff. And it's that moment when the, when the mist or the fog or the clouds begin to part and suddenly the beams of light come through. And in a way, that's what's happening here, that Jesus' divine glory has been misted or made kind of a little foggy or a little cloudy by him assuming human form and saying, I'm going to come and be, live among you as a fully human person. So it's not appropriate for me to just walk around Galilee shining like the sun because everyone will say, well, you're not like a real human being. You're just an angel. Whereas, of course, Jesus, in taking fully taking flesh, effectively shrouds some of that glory that is his in his divine being in order to live as a human being. And in this particular moment, it's like the clouds part and we get to see the divine glory all of a sudden. And it frightens the life out of them. And the point, of course, is that the sun, if you think about the cloud, when the clouds part, you see the sun and it's as if the sun suddenly got brighter. But the sun hasn't got any brighter at all. The sun's always been radiantly hot and brilliant and shining. It's just that it's been covered by these things that stand in between the sun and us. And in the transfiguration story, it's a reminder, yes, okay, he is 
as Charles Wesley put it, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. It's like he's veiled in flesh. There's a, there's a sort of a covering that means that the fullness of divine glory is inaccessible to my eyes, and now suddenly the clouds have parted, and I can see the extent of how glorious he is. A friend of mine was, <laughs> felt like a real fool. He was flying in a plane, um, and it was like one of those days where you fly through the cloud cover, and it suddenly gets really bright. And, uh, you know, that basically happens whenever you rise above the clouds, but he hadn't really thought of that. And he turns to this guy next to him who happens to be a fairly humorless businessman and says, wow, it's very bright up here today, isn't it? And the guy just looks at him and goes, it always is above the clouds, <laughs> which I just thought was, well, obviously it always is. But in some ways, there's something of that in the, risen, in, in the glory of Christ. It's like, wow, Jesus looks bright right now. It's like, he always is above the clouds. Like in, right now, Jesus shining with that transcendent brilliance and his appearance has been changed momentarily for this short period in this chapter for the disciples to be able to see the full extent of glory there that is always there, but occasionally, and much of his human life, of course, is shrouded in his humanness. And then his, his clothing became dazzling white. Again, you've got the same dynamic here, that the splendor of the Son of God illuminates the crumpled, plain, beige, probably kind of smelly clothes that the Son of Mary is wearing. But the splendor of the Son of God shines through and lights them up so they're like whiter than white. And they completely change their color. And what happens to Peter and James and John is what effectively happens in that hymn of Wesley's, isn't it? That they do. Veil, suddenly, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. They can see for themselves how glorious he truly is. And so it's good for us sometimes to stop and consider the glory of his appearance. Consider the glory also of his word. That might seem like an odd point to make because the text doesn't actually mention uh, Jesus' words. In fact, in this passage, he doesn't say anything at all. So I just want to show you where I'm getting that from. Why, why is this a passage about the glory of his word? Well, Jesus has gone up the mountain with the three leading apostles, Peter, James, and John. He's then joined by the author of the law, Moses, and the most prominent of the prophets, Elijah. In other words, Jesus is surrounded by the law, the prophets, and the apostles, but he is emphatically at the center. He is what Moses and Elijah are talking about. And I don't think that's just two random dead guys who happen to be saying, I think the text is showing us, the event is showing us, that the law and the prophets are in conversation about Jesus. He's the center of what Scripture is witnessing to. And the law, the prophets, and the apostles are all surrounded with Jesus Christ as their organizing center. It's a wonderful illustration of the doctrine of Scripture. It's basically saying the law and the prophets are talking about Jesus and the apostles are trying to make sense of what the law and the prophets mean in light of Jesus and that's what's going on in this story. But that's what's going on in the whole of scripture. Jesus is at the center. Just have a look at this, uh, this slide. This is a, a, a picture of one of the cathedral windows at the cathedral in Chartres, which is a, 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 one of the most glorious cathedrals ever built, really. It's a you know, medieval 13th, 12th, 13th century cathedral to the southwest of Paris in France. But it's an amazing window because what it shows is such a powerful image. And by the way, it's an image that you will have heard yourself, even if you've only heard it in the form of a, an, an album by Oasis or a quote by Isaac Newton. Because this actually, this window and the, the person who was the, uh, in, in charge of it, effectively, when it was built in the 13th century, it's a guy called Bernard of Chartres. He's the guy who first came up with the phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants, which is probably a phrase you've heard and maybe used 
It comes from this, and it comes from Chartres Cathedral. And what's happened, if you look carefully at these pictures, what you'll see is that you have the apostles, if you like, sitting on the shoulders of the prophets. And in fact, if you can read, I mean, you probably can't quite, but if you really zoom in or on a huge screen and you could read Latin, you could see that you've got Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah, it says Jeremias on the left-hand side, and then sitting on top of him is St. Luke. And then you basically got the four major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you've got Luke, Matthew, John, and Mark sitting on their shoulders. But then in the mid, that's the four outer windows, and then the middle window is Jesus Christ being held by Mary. And it's as if it's a beautiful picture of the way that the witness of Scripture works, that you've got these big prophets sitting on their shoulders and therefore able to see further are the apostles, but all of them are centred around the glory of Jesus Christ in the middle. And in many ways, that's what's happening in this very story. Jesus is at the centre of the whole witness of Scripture. So we consider the glory of his word because Jesus is at the heart of it. But that's not the main reason for saying we need to consider the glory of his word. The reason for highlighting it is that the voice of God himself tells us that we should. Because what God says in this story Ultimately, as he was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, here's the message of the story, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. You need to, in other words, the message of God the Father to the apostles about God the Son is, you need to listen to this one. You need to let this is my son. And it's wonderful that you've got Moses here and Elijah here and Peter, James and John and all the letters and the books and the, and the nations that will be shaped by the letters and the books they write. But ultimately, you need to listen to my son. Consider the glory of his words. There is a glory here you will not find anywhere else. Honour Moses, honour Elijah, honour the apostles. Read what they said and did. Write it on your doorposts. Memorise it in your devotional times. But listen to my son. Take his words with the utmost seriousness. And when you do, you will find that the law, the prophets and the apostles all make sense in light of him. That's obviously true of everything Jesus said and did. And we're supposed to listen to them all. But in this chapter, there is one particular message that Jesus is emphasising. And it appears actually on either side of this passage, which is when Jesus keeps saying, let this sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So when we focus on the glory of his word, we find that the the word Jesus is primarily communicating in this chapter is, I'm going to go and die. And so God tells us to listen to Jesus, and Jesus tells us to listen to one specific thing. Let this sink into your ears, he says to them. The Son of Man is about to be delivered and to die. He's going to be killed. So considering the glory of his word means moving from that then to consider the glory of his death. The death of the Lord Jesus overshadows this whole section of Luke's gospel. Jesus asks the disciples who they think he is, and as soon as Peter says he's the Christ, he immediately tells them he's going to suffer many things, be rejected, die, and then rise from the dead. Verses 21 to 22. Then he says that if they want to follow him, they're going to have to die too. Verses 23 to 27. Whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the answer is no profit at all. What use is that? The world is not enough. Then he talks to Moses and Elijah about his departure in Jerusalem, which is his death, as we've just seen. And so when the law, the prophets and the apostles have a conversation about the glory of Christ, the conversation focuses in on his death. Because that's where the glory is most plainly seen. 
Then he heals a demonized boy, verses 37 to 42. And then he starts talking about his death again in verses 43 to 45. Even as the chapter ends, he's telling would-be disciples, you have to give up everything if you want to follow me. So if you were going to do a study of the whole of Luke 9, and obviously we just read a, a little section of the chapter, but you did a study of the whole chapter, you'd find again and again Jesus circling back to this theme, my glory is revealed in my death. I'm going to go and die, and if you follow me, you're going to need to die too. You're going to need to die to yourself, renounce yourself, take up your cross and follow me wherever I call you to go. Now, we tend to see death and glory as alternatives. You know, we could, this could end gloriously or it could end in calamity, tragedy and death. We even use the phrase sometimes, death or glory. You know, this is a death or glory moment or something like that. But Jesus sees one of them as the means to the other. Jesus sees glory through death. Death in order that you might attain to glory. In John's Gospel, he talks about the crucifixion of the Son of Man as being the moment of being lifted up from the earth. And he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's what this is. The cross is the high point of the glory of Christ. And we just can't compute that, can we? We think, no, glory is escaping death and reigning forever. And it's like, well, of course, he is going to reign forever. But on his way there, he is gonna, his glory will be most manifest in his death, suffering as a substitute for sin and then rising again to demonstrate his sovereignty over it. Nothing reveals the glory of Christ like the cross. Nothing reveals the depths of God's love like the cross. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you see the love of God, Romans 5.8. Nothing reveals the depths of God's righteousness like the cross. He did this, the cross, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Nothing reveals the depths of God's mercy like the cross or the depths of God's truthfulness and faithfulness like the cross. Romans 15, 8 to 9, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. You think, how, how is God's love, mercy, faithfulness, truthfulness, justice, how is it seen? And the biblical answer is, at the cross. That's where you behold the glory of Christ. So it should not surprise us that when the glory of Christ is most plainly seen in the scriptures and in the gospels, everybody seems to be talking about his death. That Moses and Elijah are talking about the death of Christ, which he's about to accomplish. Because that's the focal point of Christ's glory in this gospel. The king who has the kingdom is a king who goes to the cross. But interestingly... The word that Luke uses in this passage to speak of Jesus' death is not actually the normal word you'd use for death or for cross. In most English versions, and in the version I read from, you would have read it, it, it's translated departure. It said Moses and Elijah spoke, and they spoke to him about his departure. Now, that's a, obviously an English word. In Luke's Greek, it's the normal word you use for exit or way out, and it's a word that you would certainly have heard. Because it's a word, actually, if you were to go to Greece today and you're in an airport and you don't know how to get out, it's the word that appears on all the signs saying, exit, this is how you get out. And it's the word exodus. That's the word Luke uses here. He says, Jesus, it's a funny word to use. If Jesus is going to, they're all having a conversation about the death of Christ, you'd think, why are they talking about the death or the cross or the suffering, all these other good words the gospel uses? Why would Luke say they went and they met together and talked to him about his exodus? 
And you might say, oh, that's a coincidence. It just means way out. But I think the Holy Spirit deliberately inspired Luke to use that word to help us see the glory of Christ, not only in his appearance and in his word and in his death, but also finally in his exodus. Look at Luke 9 as a whole. Okay, this is, so what I'm going to try and do is just say that the chapter that this is in is like an Exodus story. And I want to try and show you that. It's a bit of a strange one. But the idea that in the Old Testament, this story of Israel being freed from slavery through the Red Sea and then into the Promised Land, that Jesus is doing the same thing for his disciples as actually Moses and God did for Israel as they led Israel out of captivity. So in this chapter alone, we have Jesus calling 12 disciples at the start of the chapter. Like Israel is called as 12 tribes. And then Jesus, in this chapter, crosses the Sea of Galilee, just like Moses and Israel crossed the Red Sea. And then Jesus heads, it says, into the wilderness, which is exactly where Israel go when they've crossed the Red Sea, into the wilderness. And as he goes into the wilderness, he's followed by a multitude of Israelites who don't have any food. And the feeding of the 5,000 is about to happen. And that's, of course, what happens to Moses. He's taken them out of slavery through the Red Sea into the wilderness, followed by loads of hungry Israelites saying, we don't have any food, and he provides manna for them. Then Jesus delegates authority to his disciples, gets them arranged in groups of 50, just like Moses does with Israel in Exodus chapter 18. Then he provides heavenly bread for all of them, just like Moses does, again, in, those same, in Exodus chapter 16 and, and on in, with the manna being provided. And then eight days later, in the chapter passage we've just read, Jesus climbs the mountain, accompanied by his three key friends, Peter, James, and John, just like Moses, having led Israel to Mount Sinai, climbs the mountain, accompanied with Nadab, Abihu, and their father Aaron. They see, at the top of the mountain, they see an appearance of the glory of God as the glory cloud descends, both stories. It's taking place in Exodus chapter 25. They see the trans- and then the disciples, of course, see the transfiguration of Jesus' face, which is fascinating because that's the one thing that is different in this story. Because Moses is told, you can't see my face. No one can see the glory of God in, his full- in its fullness and live. And, of course, the disciples see Jesus' face transfigured with glory before them. Then they try and build a tent for the presence of God, just like Moses was commissioned to build a tent. We call it a tabernacle for the presence of God. And then they hear a voice from heaven urging them to listen to God's chosen one. And I'm telling you that because I want you to see that the exodus, the departure of Jesus, is not just about him leaving the stage. It's not even just about him dying, as the word departure might suggest. It's about his glory and his authority and his revelation and life and death and resurrection and ascension, as if to say, Jesus isn't just leaving. He's starting an exodus. He's proclaiming freedom for the world. It's an exodus from escape from the land of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey and abundance in which the slave masters get drowned in the sea and the multitudes find freedom and Moses has already done that and the gospel writer and the Lord God are telling you Jesus is going to do the exact same thing for his people but it's going to be far greater than the exodus from slavery you read about this is going to be one in which all of you participate and creation itself is going to find liberty there's a lot to do in this world isn't there there's a lot of stuff to do a lot of tasks a lot of detail to master a lot of things to tick off Sometimes it's good just to slow down and reflect on the glory of Christ. Just to ponder, to meditate on the glory of his his face, his appearance, the glory of his powerful words, to listen to him, the glory of his sacrificial death in which all of God's mighty attributes are so clearly and beautifully shown, and the glory of his global exodus in which the whole world will be liberated into glorious freedom forever 
This is God's son, God's beloved son, the chosen one. Listen to him. That's the invitation we're being given today, to meditate on the glory of the king. Let's use this song as a prayer of response. As we sing it together, let's give him all the glory. We worship you, our Lord, for you are worthy to be praised.